To talk about the Holy Grail is almost an impossibility. As a great Arthurian scholar, Professor Loomis, once said, if you look at the different stories about it, you get the impression that the authors are trying to contradict each other. And <laughs> I suppose they weren't. But it is very difficult to talk about the Holy Grail and say what it is or what it meant. And, of course, you begin with a kind of paradox that this, which is a great Christian myth, is also a Christian myth which, more clearly than perhaps any other, has a pagan background. Going back, we do not know how far, into Celtic mythology in the indefinitely distant past. But behind the idea of the wonder-working vessel, there are Celtic wonder-working vessels, magical cauldrons particularly, cauldrons of inspiration, of plenty, horns of plenty, cauldrons of regeneration. In the Mabinogion, there is a cauldron where if you put a dead man in it, he immediately came to life again. And there is an old Welsh poem, certainly pre-Christian, not in terms of the time it was written, but in terms of its theme, called The, Spoil the Spoils of Anun, Anun being the other world of the Celts, where uh, Arthur and his followers go through a mysterious, dangerous other world place in quest of a magical vessel, a magical cauldron. And this, I suppose, could be called the earliest version of the quest of the Grail, although it certainly isn't the grail as one pictures it now. And this imagery, these themes, have been drawn into a Christian myth. But what sort of a Christian myth is one that is rather difficult to determine. I'm going to offer some suggestions, but many might disagree. In the first place, there's been a good deal of discussion about the meaning of the word grail. And in fact, there's nothing mysterious about it at all. There have been some very fanciful suggestions as to where it came from, but it's an old French word, graal, G-R-A-A-L, and originally there's no mystery about it. It's a, it's a big dish or bowl that was used for serving at the tables of the nobility. You had vegetables or pieces of meat or whatever, and this bowl would be passed round as a serving dish. That is what a, gra a growl originally is, and there's nothing more mysterious about it. But what happens is very curious. The first romance of the Holy Grail was written by the French poet Chrétien de Troyes somewhere about the 1170s or 1180s. Chrétien was really the founder of the romantic Arthurian stories, of course, he had been presented in a more pseudo-historical way before that, but the romances of, for instance, Lancelot and Guinevere begin with lo the long French narrative poems by Chrétien de Troyes. And Chrétien wrote an unfinished story of the Grail. There are several attempts to finish it by other writers. We do not know how he would have finished it himself. And in this story, uh, the young knight Percival, who of course is one of the important Arthurian characters, the naive innocent who, whose story consists partly in his learning, 
Percival comes to a mysterious castle in the, in the midst of a wasteland. He is welcomed in it by the lord of the castle, who is known as the Fisher King. And while they are sitting in the hall, a strange procession passes through. Several young people carrying spears and other strange objects, and a maiden carrying a magnificent grail with a small g, simply a magnificent large vessel with jewels all over it, clearly a very special one. We're not told what it is. We are told that it has extraordinary properties of preserving life, for instance. In an inner room, there's another man who we never see, a rather mysterious person who is lying there sick and wounded, and he is, can, he is kept alive by a consecrated mass wafer in the grail, which is taken to him each day. He has no other food. Now, Percival, as you may, you might well imagine, wants to know what all this is about. But unfortunately, and this is an important part of his story in several versions, before leaving home, he was warned by one or two elders, <coughs> his elders betters, that he should be very cautious about asking questions. It was rude to ask questions when he came to the halls of the nobility or the court of the king. So he doesn't ask any questions. And presently he finds himself alone, and it appears he should have. He should have asked the rather mysterious question, who is served from the grail? And if he had asked this ritual question, the wounded man's wound would have healed, and the wasteland all around the castle would have come back to life. But he didn't do it. Now this is the first stage. The story has the Christian element in it of the consecrated mass wafer, but we are not told what this great vessel is or where it came from or anything else. And, of course, the whole idea of the wound and the wasteland and the rest of it, these are clearly older motifs from fertility mythology. Now the next stage is that we are told what the grail is and where it came from, but not by Chrétien. We are told by another Frenchman, Robert de Baron, uh, who wrote, or began to write, a cycle of Arthurian romances towards, towards the year 1200, somewhere in the 1190s, or soon after 1200. And among other things, he does tell us what the Grail was, and he gives us its early history. And now it isn't just a Grail, it is the Grail, the Holy Grail, the special thing. And he goes back to Scripture and tells us that the Grail was the vessel at the Last Supper in which Christ instituted his sacrament. And after Afterwards, it came into the possession of Joseph of Arimathea. We really know very little about Joseph. Of course, he's an important figure in legend here in Glastonbury. But authentically, there is really nothing about him except the passages in the four Gospels telling us that it was he who obtained the body of Christ from Pilate and laid it in the tomb. We're also told that the Grail somehow came into his possession. It's rather strange because he wasn't at the Last Supper, he wasn't at one of the Apostles, but for whatever reason, Joseph gets this object, 
that when Christ hung on the cross, he caught drops of the sacred blood in it. And afterwards, uh, he was <coughs> imprisoned by Jews who were opposed to Christ. Christ. The risen Lord, however, appeared to him and told him secret words with which the grail could be it's difficult to know what word to use that doesn't sound ridiculous, something like activated, that the grail was the medium of some mystery or revelation which could be obtained through it. Uh, Joseph was sustained in a prison cell for a long time by the presence of the grail alone. Here again we have this theme of it providing life and nourishment. At last he was released, and with various relatives and companions and the grail, he set off on a sort of pilgrimage through unnamed countries, a little like Moses of the children of Israel. He made a special table to set the grail on. It was clearly a wonderful thing. Spiritual revelations came through it. And at last, some of his companions are told, take it to Britain, to the Vales of Avalon, that is, this low country round about here. And presumably they do, or did, but unfortunately, once again, the story breaks off. We don't know how, how Robert de Baron would have finished it, but presumably the Grail is brought to Britain and entrusted to a succession of keepers. But Joseph doesn't go. Uh, the idea of Joseph coming to Britain is not in this story, and this is one of the curious things about it. We all say very easily that according to the legend, Joseph of Arimathea brought the Grail to Glastonbury. And as a matter of fact, as far as I know, there is not one early version of the story that says so. You get different bits of it, that Joseph came to Britain, but he is not mentioned as coming to Glastonbury, or that Joseph came to Glastonbury, but without the Grail, or that the Grail was brought to Avalon, but without Joseph. It's very strange. There are bits and pieces of the story that come through in all sorts of different ways. But I don't know of any medieval author, any early author at all, who makes a plain statement, which is so familiar to us here now, that Joseph brought the Grail to Glastonbury. You may be startled to hear this, but I don't know of anybody who says it before Tennyson in the 19th century. Now, there were others. There is a romance called Pelevo, which is about Percival again. That seems to be based on some sort of document they had at the Abbey here. This has been disputed, but I think the evidence is quite sufficient. Uh, and here we meet Percival again, and uh, in the time of Arthur, by which time the Grail is in its mysterious castle, nobody quite knows where, and the land is waste, and if you go and ask the right question, etc., etc., but Percival doesn't do it. And there are a lot of other themes in this story which we need not go into. Perlevo has several points of interest. One is that that was the original inspiration of Catherine Mortwood's theory of the Glastonbury Zodiac. The idea that there are signs of the Zodiac laid out in the country round about here. She read this romance and found... I think her starting point was that there are references to very unexpected things in this neighbourhood, like lions, and began to have the idea that they were, they were symbolic. And then she began, as she believed, picking out figures in a map, until she thought that you could pick out a whole zodiac round about Glastonbury. Perlevo was Mrs. Maltwood's starting point, I believe. 
The classic version really, the one that comes through to Sir Thomas Mallory and Tennyson and others, is the, the Quest of the Holy Grail, which is a French romance written in somewhere about 1220 or 30 perhaps, written either by a cleric or by somebody under very strong church influence. It's uh, a very orthodox Catholic story. And <coughs> this is the one that introduces Galahad. We're told that the, um, the grail appeared over the round table, uh, veiled, but it was the grail, and each knight miraculously received the food of his choice and vowed to go in quest of this thing which was somewhere in Britain. But only Galahad, who was the perfectly pure and virtuous knight, the model of chivalry and chastity, eventually, eventually does it. Now, <clears throat> again, there's a certain misunderstanding here, I think. The idea that these are stories about a holy relic, they're not. And people who say the grail is somewhere or other and you, and you can find it, they misunderstand the stories. Um, there are plenty of legends about holy relics, but the Grail evidently isn't this. These stories are in some sense symbolic or allegorical. The Grail in them is supposed to be a special, a special link which Britain somehow has with God, uh, because Christ personally gave the Grail to Joseph and it came here to this country. But to find it is not a question of finding a lost object at all. I remember uh, in one of Max Beerbohm's cartoons, a boy is saying to Dante Gabriel Rossetti, but Mr. Rossetti, when the knights found the grail, what were they going to do with it? Well, what indeed? Uh, it's simply not a story about finding a lost object. It is a story about an experience. Mm. The knight who is worthy of it achieving the grail, takes part in a special ceremony uh, in which um, the, the grail, mass is said with the grail, and through the medium of the grail he has a transcendent vision. Then uh, Galahad eventually has it, not in Britain because the grail has been taken out to a mysterious place called Saras. He has the vision, he dies immediately after. We never know what it was, but it would seem to be exactly the same that Dante imagines at the end of the Divine Comedy, the vision of God face to face, as it were, and the Trinity. Uh, this seems to be what uh, the same thing that Galahad sees, the source of eternal life, in fact. Now what we see here, of course, is that something rather strange and subtle has happened. In the background, there are these pre-Christian myths about a wonderful vessel that is a source of nourishment of physical life a horn of plenty in the Christian versions it has become spiritual life and yet we never quite lose touch with the old conception even in this extremely spiritualized version of the, called the quest when the grail appears at the round table the knights are miraculously, literally, receive food. You've never quite lost touch with that background. And similarly, bodily life has become eternal life. 
And, of course, it is involved with the sacramental idea because it was the vessel in which Christ made his sacrament. This involves the medieval doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. And, in fact, the, uh, the knights who come closest to the vision do actually see apparitions of Christ. Well, it goes on, but those are the principal versions. But one thing that we should say at once, of course, is that there is really no consistency about this. The great, the great German version, Parsifal, uh, on which Wagner based his opera, the Parsifal, of course, is Percival again, the original Grail Quester, but it's quite a different story, or well, not quite different, it's adapted to, from Cratian to some extent. But the Grail isn't even a vessel, it's a magical stone that fell from heaven, and it is in the custody of an order of knights who are called Templars, and there has been a lot of speculation about this. And the, the Grail King is wounded, but the reason for the wound is different, the question that has to be asked is different, the atmosphere is more one of uh, charity than initiation. It's a quite different story, and I don't think you can really reconcile them, except to the extent that this idea of a supernatural source of life, physical and eternal and spiritual eternal life, is behind them all. Now, you might say, what about the attitude of medieval Christianity to this? And this is very extraordinary. So far as I know, no official ecclesiastical spokesman ever says anything about the Grail. It isn't recognized as an authentic Christian legend. It certainly isn't recognized as a holy relic story, and indeed it isn't. But on the other hand, there are those who have put forward theories that this is some kind of a Christian heresy. They have tried to connect it with the Cathars, for instance, who were persecuted. But no, it, it, the, the Grail stories are not condemned as heretical either. They are simply ignored. This is very interesting and rather curious, I think. And the same happens at Glastonbury Abbey, where, of course, they adopted the story of Joseph coming to Britain. Uh, the great chronicle of John of Glastonbury does, in fact, take over some of the, some elements from the Grail stories, but there is no Grail. They said, instead, that Joseph was buried with two cruets, of gold and silver containing drops of the blood and sweat of Christ. This, of course, would be quite an ordinary kind of holy relic story. And if you look at him uh, in stained glass in the church in Langport, uh, you'll see that what he is holding there uh, are the two cruets. The only representation of uh, Joseph in a church with the grail, so far as I know, is in the modern tapestry at St. Mary's in Magdalen Street here where, of course, we are a very long way from these medieval controversies, and it's, it's all right for Joseph to have the grail. But certainly in the Middle Ages, the Abbey did not recognize the story, and it wasn't for want of claiming holy relics. Uh, the list of the Abbey's relics in John of Glastonbury's Chronicle is absolutely extraordinary. extraordinary. They, have, they, they get as near as a splinter from the table of the Last Supper. Uh, my favourite Glastonbury relic was one of the stones that Jesus refused to turn to bread. <laughs> <coughs> but not the grail. So clearly there was a reason why 
churchmen could circle around the story, could accept Joseph's coming to Britain, could believe that he had some special relationship with Christ, perhaps, but not the Grail. Now, why is this so? Well, if nobody says anything, it's impossible to tell. It's not endorsed. If, it, if any church, church spokesman had condemned it, we might understand, had called it, called it heretical or anything of that sort, but this never happens. There was no attempt to suppress the stories. They were simply not recognised. I think there are several reasons for this. One, of course, is that it is not the sort of holy relic story that was favoured in the medieval church. It's clearly something else, something strange and esoteric that you don't know quite how to get hold of. A rather suspect kind of mysticism, in spite of the fact that the author of the quest, the one with Galahad in it, is, is entirely orthodox. There is not a, not a glint of any sort of departure from the medieval Catholic position in it. And Galahad is really too much of a paragon to be a satisfactory character. But no, no, it won't do. I think there are several reasons. One is that this idea of a kind of esoteric experience is something that was rather difficult to handle. Now, Dante does it in the Divine Comedy. Uh, Charles Williams, I think it was, first pointed out that the vision at the end of the Divine Comedy is the same as the vision of the gra in the Grail, which only Galahad sees, but Dante fitted the whole thing into an entirely orthodox great poem about uh, heaven and hell and purgatory. And he... he leant heavily on the official Thomist philosophy, so it was all right. But the knights in the quest stories, it's, much, it's very peculiar. They're doing something which doesn't really seem to fit into the, general, into the norms of the church, and particularly, perhaps, is the idea of the solitary quest. The view of the church was always much more collective. The church is the people of God who assemble for worship. And even, in the, even those who embraced the religious life generally did it in communities. Of course there were hermits. But on the whole, the medieval church takes a very social view of religion. And this idea of knights sort of disappearing for years in the forests and finally having curious visions in inaccessible castles didn't really fit. And it was difficult to make it work, even as an allegory, although some of the later Grail writers do this and become rather dull in the process. I think this is one reason. Not that it was unorthodox, but that it was curious. It didn't really fit. In a moment I'm going to suggest why this may be. Another thing that I think may well be significant is that the, in the stories of the Grail, quite consistently... Uh, women play a part in the ritual, which was not normal in the medieval church ritual. Women bear the grail, and so forth. Uh, evidently, they are important characters. And this, again, is at variance with any form of, uh, ri of ritual as carried out in the in church in the Middle Ages, apart from certain special things like uh, Easter Day mystery plays and so on. As I said, I don't 
think anybody combines Joseph of Arimathea's two roles until Tennyson. The Abbey said that he came here and founded Christian Glastonbury. The Grail romancers said that he or companions of his brought the Grail to Britain. But as I said, the plain statement that Joseph came to Glastonbury is made first, I think, by Tennyson in his Idyll, in the Idylls of the King series. It's rather interesting to see what Tennyson makes of it. He, to some extent, is following the version in Mallory, and Mallory, in turn, is following the quest, the Galahad story which I mentioned. But Tennyson gives it rather a different angle, I think. The, the theme he is developing all through the Idylls of the King is the idea that Arthur's kingdom stands for an attempt at a spiritually inspired monarchy, a society where, as Tennyson indeed puts it, the, the war of sense with soul is resolved in the success of soul. And eventually, of course, in Tennyson's scheme, this breaks down because sense, the body, the matter, is too strong. Uh, this is represented in the Queen's adultery, which sets the bad example that gradually causes the whole thing to unstick. Now, what is he to do with the Grail? Well, his conclusion, it, it's foreshadowed in medieval romances, but I think he's a good deal clearer about it, is that the quest of the Grail is a bad thing. And I would like to read the passage where he combines the legends because I think it's, a very, it's very attractively put. Uh, this is where um, uh, one of the former grail seekers, um, Percival, has retired to a monastery and another one asks him about the grail. What is it? The phantom of a cup that comes and goes? Nay, monk, what phantom? answered Percival. The cup, the cup itself from which our Lord drank at the last sad supper with his own. This, from the blessed land of Aramet, after the day of darkness when the dead went wandering o'er Maria, the good Saint Arimathean Joseph journeying brought to Glastonbury, where the winter thorn blossoms at Christmas, mindful of the Lord. And there a while it bowed, and if a man could touch or see it, he was healed at once by faith of all his ills. But then the times grew to such evil that the holy cup was caught away to heaven and disappeared whom the monk from our old books I know that Joseph came of old to Glastonbury and there the heathen prince Arverigus gave him an isle of marsh whereon to build and there he built with wattles from the marsh a little lonely church I think this is the first place where the Joseph stories are really brought together quite elegantly I think now at this point Percival seems to be speaking of the, of the grail as a kind of superlative holy relic and perhaps Tennyson might have wished to keep it on that level, but he can't because the story is evidently too strong for him. And when it appears over the round table, it's quite different. And all at once, as there we sat, we heard a cracking and a writhing of the roofs, and rending, and a blast, and overhead thunder, and in the thunder was a cry, and in the blast there smote along the hall a beam of light seven times more clear than day. And down the long beam stole the holy grail, all covered over with a luminous cloud, and none might see who bore it, and it passed. So they go off on the quest, and Galahad, ultimately, he cuts out the episode in the Mallory where, in the quest where 
the Galahad does achieve the supreme vision. We only know that he has achieved it somewhere in the distance. And many of the knights who have gone on the quest never come back, and many of them are the best. And now the king had been apprehensive about this at the beginning. And in fact, this is in the original version, that Arthur regrets from the beginning thought no good would come of it. Was I too dark a prophet? And I said to those who went upon the holy quest that most of them would follow wandering fires, lost in a quagmire, lost to me, and gone, and left me gazing at a barren board and a lean order, scarce returned at tithe, and out of those to whom the vision came, my greatest hardly will believe he saw. Another hath beheld it afar off, and leaving human wrongs to right themselves, cares but to pass into the silent life. And one hath had the vision face to face, and now his chair desires him here in vain, however they may crown him otherwhere. So to Tennyson, the thing is essentially false. He is talking about Arthur's kingdom as an attempt to create a spiritually ordered society. And the trouble with the Grail is that the men who should be upholding that society have all disappeared in the distance on a spiritual quest for which most of them are not fitted. And even the one who does achieve it never comes back. I think myself, and this is more or less aside, that Tennyson is influenced here by the religious controversies of his own time, uh, particularly the Oxford movement, the revival of monastic, the monastic life, the conversion of Newman to Catholicism and other events, where what might have been called respectable Christianity was being called in question. Tennyson certainly stands for respectable Christianity, the good society doing good in the world and so on and so forth, and rejecting the idea that there can be a call to a more spiritual life such as the, the Oxford movement, Newman and others, were urging. Not, of course, the suggestion that everybody was called to it, but that it is a valid way of life. And Tennyson, I think, rejects this. He, his stress on the idea of religion as social duty in this world, as it were, is too strong. However, I won't, certainly won't pursue the story any further, uh, T.H. White, in The Once and Future King, more or less gave up on it. There's not really much about it. And there have been other interpretations in recent years. Um, there is, of course, John Matthews' book, At the Table of the Grail, edited by John, who is an authority on the myth, with quite a number of contributors. It's an extremely interesting book. I do rather get the feeling, at the end of it, that for all, all or most of his contributors, the Grail is whatever they say it is, and <laughs> that, uh, that leaves you pretty much out on a limb. But it's an interesting book. Now, can we get at any sort of constant underlying this? I would be inclined to relate it um, to the Christianity of the Celts in the 6th, 7th century, the so-called Dark Ages, when in fact the, the Christianity of the Celts in these islands was the most active and in some way the most learned of Western Europe, certainly in Ireland. Celtic Christianity, of course, there is a lot of misunderstanding about it. 
There wasn't a separate Celtic church sticking out here all by itself, which was dragged in later. Celtic Christianity was always part of the universal church, but because the people of Britain and Ireland had been partially cut off for a long time, because they had, a, in particularly in Ireland, a very different kind of society from what you had on the continent, their Christianity was differently organised, much more round uh, religious communities than round bishops and cities, because they had so few cities. And there was a decided difference of atmosphere in several ways. Because the, um, uh, because the religious community was so important, the monastery or the convent, you had correspondingly a, a higher position of women in the church, because while there were no women bishops or secular priests, there were nuns, and some of them were very prominent figures. In some cases they had, for instance, mixed communities of men and women with an abbess at the head, and this, in fact, spilt over into England for a time, at Whitby, for example, where St Hilda presided over a mixed community. Um, so the position of women is one thing. Another that I think goes deeper in this connection is a different attitude to the old order, to the old gods and the old mythology. I don't think there's anything mysterious about it. I think it's due to, more or less, to accident that in most of the former Roman Empire, Christians had been persecuted by pagan authorities, abetted by the pagan priesthoods, and thousands of them had been killed. So most Christians saw the old gods as demonic, as evil. In the British Isles this didn't happen. There was very little persecution of Christians in Britain. There were very few Christians to persecute at the time of the last persecutions. There was none, of course, in Ireland. There may have been Christians, but it was outside the empire. And by the time Ireland became Christianized in the 5th century, uh, the, the age of the persecutions has passed. So the Celts didn't look upon the old gods and the old myths as evil. They were able to sort of domesticate them. Uh, you could take over a god or goddess in legend and make that figure into a king or a queen or an enchantress characters like Bellinus and Bran and Morgan and various others whom you find in Celtic mythology. And of course one classic instance from Ireland is St. Bridget, mm -hmm. who is a goddess and a saint. And it's rather difficult to know where one stops and the other starts. Um, in fact, there is certainly a phase when a good Christian in these islands could have it both ways. If there was a real Merlin, I think he was probably like that as um, C.S. Lewis pointed out a long time ago, and this was carried in over into the film Excalibur, where I think Merlin was the most convincing figure in the film. He is a sort of druid, but he is also recognising that there is a different world now, and I think he could have been like that. And consequently, you had a kind of Christianity where the old myths, the old conceptions, the old deities were much more at home and treated much more kindly and the corresponding motifs, like, for instance, uh, the Irish legends of people voyaging out in the Atlantic to earthly paradises and magical islands and so forth, which turns up quite cheerfully in the legend of St. Brendan's voyage. But I, re I don't think there's anything like St. Brendan's voyage in the, in the Mediterranean world, because 
those islands and strange beings over the sea and all the rest of it would have been seen as devilish. Now, of course, the Celtic Church and the parts of the Church of the Anglo-Saxon Church, which were converted by the Celts, mainly in the north, uh, came into conformity with the rest. At the Synod of Whitby and afterwards, uh, there were great disputes over what seemed like rather trivial things, like the date of fixing Easter, which became battle cries. Uh, but the Celts were brought into line, as we know, and this attitude tended in the Middle Ages to die away in, in a much more black and white sort of Christianity, which eventually uh, produced new kinds of persecution. And yet it seems to me that there is this sense of something else hovering there, and that perhaps it is in the Grail stories that this carries on in medieval Christendom, pagan themes, pagan conceptions and experiences, and certain things in detail, like the position of women, and the attitude to the old order. A sense of something else is something I've called it myself. I think this is fair. I don't believe for one moment, uh, as some literary scholars have done, that the Grail is a sort of heretical cult. Jesse Weston put forward that idea, and I don't think it works at all, but that it was something different. And to me, I find the Grail stories, most, their most interesting feature, is as something that carries over the Celtic element in Christianity. And the Grail is a symbol of that. Something within Christianity that was there very strongly for a time, that tended to take a back seat, but that can still develop again, I believe in the enrichment and development, perhaps, of Christianity in the future. And from that point of view, I think the Grail does draw our attention to the Celtic tradition, and drawing our attention to the Celtic tradition is, I believe, a very good, very enriching kind of thing.